0: As you can probably tell, Andrew and I had a lot of fun talking to each other and just had so much to talk about this whole time. But in this final episode, we really focus on the Catholic and Protestant differences and our views of authority of scripture, the authority of the early church and tradition, and also some lightning round questions. They're just random miscellaneous questions that we've always wanted to ask the other about maybe the Catholic or Protestant faith and different things that we believe. So I think like I mean, that's where they'll say, like, the Bible is our authority, which is problematic. And I don't think, you know, like at Fuller, you know, it's, it's so funny because it's not, people always call it such a liberal seminary, and it's not. It's more middle of the road. But that's the thing. If you go somewhere like the Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley, they'll be like, oh, you actually believe in a physical resurrection? Like, they'll laugh at you. Wow. Uh, so that's, like, super liberal, uh, you know, if you want to even call that Christian. But I guess it's, it's a seminary. So or they call themselves seminary and, you know, but then if you go to like a uh, Dallas Theological Seminary or something like that, they're like, you know, how could you entertain this idea or, you know, whatever it might be. So, um, so they kind of get stuck in the middle of the road and get, you know, fire arrows from okay. both sides. Um, but with, so, you know, we would kind of criticize where yet yeah, you can't exist in a vacuum of tradition that, yeah. um, that there's, there's going to be something, you know, whether even like certain Protestant doctrines are a reaction to the Catholic church. So you have to at least acknowledge that. And Some some churches do like denominational uh, denominational churches do like, Mm -hmm. you know, as part of a Presbyterian church for a while. And they would say like, Hey, this is where we came from. This is where this comes from or why this was written. So they're a little bit better about that. Um, And then uh, so, you know, like the uh, Anglicans, um, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, people like that. But then, you know, the large, non-denominational evangelical churches um they aren't as in tune with their history and i think that's where I can erroneously say oh we we get the, you know we read the bible we listen to the bible
1: um, yeah,
0: right. but it's still a um it's still a very much white evangelical american interpretation of the scriptures right um, so you know that I mean that's where sometimes like we would have kids go on like missions trips and they would just hear a totally different interpretation of a passage. Right. And they like don't know what to do because they're like, wait, they're not preaching the Bible the way it's supposed to be preached. Um and so I think that's where yeah the authority comes from the Bible as Protestants interpreted. So that's that's often problematic. Um and so I think that's where biblical scholarship is important. Right. Um so that's where like at least for me, you know, and that that's where I'm I'm curious, you know, Oh, sorry. And one thing I want to go back to as well is they'll often talk about the early church, which can be a bit of an issue because like there's, it's sort of like the United States relationship with like Britain almost where, (laughs) because the, the, the Protestants are by like heritage rebellious saying, well, we think you're wrong. So we're going to split. See you later. Not like reform from the inside whatever. You know, that's, that's a very American ideal. And yet like we don't really think of like, let's say the Magna Carta and it's, it's impact right. on a constitutional monarchy and how it helped develop. Uh, we kind of just almost act like the constitution was like the first and greatest thing that right. established human rights, whatever, which, Hey, it's a monumental effort and feat and all that. Sure. Um, and so I think Protestants are kind of like the same where they're like, Oh, cool. Like, yeah, like such and such guy from the early church said this and I guess, thanks for that. But really, here's what we like. Yeah, and then, and then we just kind of jump back. Right. Um, so there is kind of a weird relationship with it that's problematic at times. Um, so, oh, but I, I guess what I'm really curious about is um, because like, you know, in, in seminary, we we studied Greek and Hebrew uh, mm-hmm. and I was so much better at Greek and my Hebrew is horrendous. But so yeah. I'm so curious because Protestants and the Orthodox Church are really big on the Greek text. For but sure. from what we were always taught was that a lot of the Catholic translations still stem from the Latin translation, stuff like that. You know, what's that like, or I don't know if you've done much study into that, but is, is there more focus on the Latin text or how is that dynamic with the Greek and the Latin text in the Catholic church? Yeah.
2: I mean, so the word, the word of God lived out in liturgy and sacrament um, is obviously something that yeah, we practice, right? So liturgy is, is our form of worship and in that context, yeah, the, the emphasis of Latin, I think, is um, always been something that, yeah, I think since the, like the 11th, 12th century was something implemented and it is more of a sacred language. I'd say in biblical scholarship, if you look at guys like Scott Hahn or Brent Petrie, hmm. just wrote a book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Um, we have incredible scholars right now doing a lot of work on Jesus as a Jew hmm. and studying a lot of the Hebrew. And the Greek, so I've really loved that. I've actually benefited a lot from that. I myself don't—we, I haven't learned obviously to speak any of those languages. But looking at the scholarship of the guys who are, I'd say yeah, very regularly we're looking at the Greek um, and the Hebrew more. There's guys starting to emphasize that more. Um, so yeah, I think the as a whole, your average Catholic still has a horrible knowledge of the scriptures. I mean, I'd say this is like the biggest problem in the catholic church is is mostly people just going to mass to check off Hmm. you know check it off the list and maybe that's in the protestant world too and there's not really an engagement um in in the study of the word of god but the finding is as as priests and religious and and this is something that again an early church practice uh we pray what's called the liturgy of the hours so Hmm. literally catholic consecrated men and women every priest the millions of priests nuns sisters consecrated lay people they pray five times a day. This fat book called Liturgy of the Hours, it's four, four volumes. Mm-hmm. It's all the Psalms, Scripture, early writings, and you're praying that five times a day. So mm-hmm. readings in the morning, um, morning prayer, daytime prayer. So so you got office readings, morning prayer, daytime prayer, evening prayer, and night prayer. So really our days um, in liturgy is immersed in Scripture. I mean... And I think in those texts, at least in the prayers, yeah, we're just reading English and, and translations. You know, we're not looking into um, Greek and things of that nature. Hmm. But yeah, I'd say in the scholarship right now, there's been um, very regular, very regular Fulton Sheen, the Bishop of New York, who's a um, great evangelist. Um, yeah, he brought up a lot of, of um, language and translation in that realm. So yeah, I'd say it's actually very prevalent um, mm. in in the Catholic world, and yeah, you can kind of trace a lot of the sacramental life, so as Catholics we really um, you know base a lot of our liturgy off of scripture and, and tradition and uh you know two Thessalonians five was um sorry two thessalonians two fifteen is where uh, we read about the oral tradition and the letter, so again, mm. I you know keep sharing that uh the church was a lived reality too, and there was no um you know the the canon was not decided, so I guess one of my questions too is like how how do Protestants uh, come to the conclusion that the canon is even the canon? Um, and how did they how did we come to know that the canon is the canon when there was no canon? <laughs> you know, so yeah. the canon was a something that you know the early church fathers came up with, and so in our context of the canon of the scriptures, um, yeah, we we look at a sacramental existence, so a lot of the things in mass are, uh, y- you can actually look at a lot of the Greek understanding um, and and the Hebrew Jewish understanding, a lot of the Aramaic of um, the incense. Hmm. Um, you're looking at a lot of the different um, postures of prayer, the standing, the kneeling, the sitting, all these things probably when you were at your wedding, we are like, what the heck is all this stuff? Oh, yeah. you know? um, a lot of these things we actually derive from um, obviously latin meanings but a, a, a lot of greek and and hebrew um tradition so a lot of these different practices with the robes with the garments i mean we're getting this stuff from from scripture and and from the levitical priesthood of melchizedek mm-hmm. um, so you see it in the old testament you see it in the new and and then you know jesus we would say is the fulfillment of the law mm-hmm. and that liturgical practice is actually immersed in a lot of that um, scriptural basis of sacrifice, of worship, of praise. And, you know, obviously we, we believe that Jesus is the lamb that was slain. He is the new Passover. He's the new Exodus. He's the bread of the presence. I really love um, diving into that um, typology of the uh, that golden thread right through through the scriptures of, of worship and the manna from heaven. We believe mm-hmm. that the Eucharist Really fulfills all these things. It's the manna, you know, it's the manna from heaven, it's the bread of the presence, it's, um, you know, the new Exodus, the Passover. And, dude, when you study um, Passover theology, I don't know if you've gotten into that much or the Protestants look into that in the Old Testament. A little bit. Yeah, it's like amazing, dude. And uh, so, Brant Peachy would be a guy I, I would recommend. He um, wrote the book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of of the Eucharist. And for me, I guess, again, as a a Catholic, when it comes down to, um, I don't know, yeah, I guess transitioning into into worship, uh, for me, that that right worship seemed to be a really crucial reality of the Old and New Testament. Like, right worship really mattered. So I think this nebulous, like, kind of, um, I don't know, I think we've gotten really far away from being concerned with those things where yeah in a normal service it's maybe more like yeah we can do communion whenever we want we'll have this kind of flow of three songs usually upbeat worship Mm -hmm. you know get into the secret place you know get our worship going and you know play a little bit more slower praise and worship and um i find for me right worship to be a very concerning topic of the Mm. scriptures so for me diving into that honestly i think is what kept me in the Catholic church. Uh, at least I found that our worship um, being centered around sacrifice was something that was really what Jesus implemented in the last supper. He said, do this in memory. I mean, he didn't say, just think about this or like trying to, you know, from time to time, he said, do this in memory of me. Mm-hmm. And um, so we take that seriously, you know, but Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess I um, kind of got into that because I, I find that the oral tradition, at least in regards to talking about the Greek and the Hebrew, um, tr- you know, tradition of interpretation. Um, I, I find that the oral tradition of the passing down of the teachings of, of Jesus was really crucial mm-hmm. um, to our expression of right worship. And I just don't know how often that conversation comes up. You know, it's like we can talk about Sola Scriptura and Calvinism and all these other things, but it's like, I don't know if the, the topic of um, right worship comes up very much, you know?
0: Yeah. No, I, I hear you because that's actually something I, I really want to talk about because, um, well, I, I think there's also a, at least in my mind, a little bit of a, a difference of, um, I, I keep wondering, you know, if I was to be a senior pastor, if I should rename the worship leader, or worship pastor, whatever position as the praise leader or something like that, or the praise team, praise band right because yeah i think worship is so much more than just uh the liturgy the service the singing it's it's a lifestyle and and i think you know from what i've heard from the catholic world it's like very much in line like across a lot of the christian spectrum and yet like i think what i what i'm hearing you saying is like even more so yeah does does right, dogma beliefs confessions and yes like liturgy and worship is that important um And, you know, I, I think of, uh, what was so interesting to me, and this is actually a concern of mine in, in the growing Protestant movements is that there is not a value for orthodoxy, uh, but more so for orthopraxy, you know, right works or, and that's not to say that like they're being works-based or whatever, but yeah, right living, which, you know, I mean, that's part of worship or, you know, some people call it orthocardia, having the right heart. Um. But yeah, I think we've largely in the Protestant world been neglecting orthodoxy. So you know, th- this stems uh, my my big experience of it was in a class at at Fuller Seminary, where um, it was some you know theology of you know God and uh, of the Father and Christ and the Holy Spirit and I, you know all the big stuff. So you know. we went through a lot of the heresies, and you know we'd have debates on them, and we'd have to you know like yeah. assign people sides and stuff. And I remember one of the craziest was Arianism. Um, so- and I remember
2: like massive movement.
0: Yeah. And like I didn't realize how popular it was, at least for a time, you know, when they they had the first councils of Nicaea and stuff like that. But um what really blew us away was we argue and we're defending and like finally we're asking, like, what's the answer? Like, why did the church, you know, come against Arianism, write the Nicene Creed the way it is? Uh, you know, and I I remember my professor's big answer was sort of this idea of the eternal begottenness of Christ, right. um, which really just blew us away. But you know, we, we kind of finished talking about, and someone just kind of went, what does this all matter? Like, who cares? How does this affect the way you live? And we start kind of thinking about, we go, it doesn't. I mean, you could be an Aryan Christian and it might never affect the way you live at all. Yeah. Your worship might be slightly different. Maybe your worship lyrics will be a little different, but, and, and so people kept going, well, why does it matter to God then? And I think that has become so difficult And it's I don't know if it's the same way in the Catholic church, but for a lot of Christians Mm -hmm. to sort of conceptualize that God cares about his holiness and that, you know, that his name should be hallowed and that we believe and confess and do the right things in worship. You know, there's a a passage in numbers. I remember we brought up in that class where it was like the sons of Aaron were like known as like wicked men because they, they offered an improper impure sacrifice willfully and were consumed with fire and Saul Offered a sacrifice without Samuel being there, yeah. and he's like' you're, really you're, out. you're done morality yeah, and so that really blew me away and that's something that I'm concerned with so I'm also curious what do you think because I think that yeah, we do have to kind of take a stand sometimes and say, actually, no, you have to believe this thing about who Jesus is, even if your life is whatever all in order and you're following all these Christian practices that's great, good for you, but these are like core tenets that may not affect that much of how you live right but that are still important to god
2: yeah i think if we look at um how jesus revealed uh especially like the beatitudes you know and 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 that being such a radical i mean such a radical shift from what was preached before um especially just taking everything to the next level right it's like you can't just be uh, you know you can't kill someone that's that's sinful but even if you have anger in your heart right mm-hmm. it's next level you can't see you know sexual morality but if you lust at a woman you've already committed to adultery. I think when Jesus you know really took a lot of these teachings to the next level um he he did expect to a certain level I think um for those to be a lived orthopraxy I mean there there is I think a very clear correlation to um Obviously, do even doing good works without love. Mm-hmm. It's mean, clear that you can you can have all the knowledge in the world, you can you know go whatever you can, uh, you know, do all the best things in the world, or whatever for God. But if you don't have love, you you are you know clinging symbol. And um, so I think in that context of yeah, I, well one yeah I just think I think it does matter how God is worshipped. Um, I think we've seen that in in the way that Christianity has been expressed over, you know, the last mm-hmm. 2000 years, like when it goes wrong. And it was, this isn't, this is a story of Israel. How many times do they go and worship idols and worship other mm-hmm. things? And so we already see that going wrong and God caring how they were worship, how he was worshiped. So why would all of a sudden that change with Jesus? I actually just think now that Jesus came, the is to a whole new level degree. Mm-hmm. I think it's an even higher need for right worship. And um, that's why I do think, you know, dialogue on cer- certain, um, you know, topics of discussion uh, in, in the Catholic and Protestant world are necessary because we're either, I mean, we are either the whore of Babylon
1: mm-hmm. or like
2: we are doing what Jesus said. I mean, we have men in the confessionals forgiving people's sins and saying that their sins are now, you know, you know what Jesus said, you can forgive those sins here if you're forgiven, mm-hmm. or found, down in heaven where it was loose as loose in heaven. Like we have men forgiving people's sins. We have people really believing that they're receiving the body, blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. I mean, these are really big claims and mm-hmm. I don't know how much longer we can just say, ah, it's just a different way to worship God. It's like at the end of the day, it's it, to me, it's again, um, it matters how we interpret scripture and it matters where that interpretation comes from. And, um, yeah. I don't know. I think when I've, I've been to a lot of different Protestant services and I've been blessed by them. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I've been to Hillsong, sold out stadiums. I've been to Bethel. I've done a lot of Southern California, you know, Calvary, a lot of different, you know, churches. Mm-hmm. And honestly, um, when I leave a worship service, this could, this is definitely just cause I believe in the Eucharist, but I leave those events feeling empty. Mm. Like I can receive the word in faith, but if I don't receive the word in the flesh, like, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and if I don't experience that consumption of God, um, I don't experience real satisfaction, you know? So I guess in regards to orthopraxy, faith and works as Catholics is what we believe. We believe the faith without works is dead. Um, and if you really believe in God, your life will be uh, demonstrating that, you know? Mm-hmm. So to me, that's that's very biblical. It's in the scriptures, you know? And obviously the interpretation of that could be, uh you know um yeah shared and and i'll you know there's can be dialogue on that but um yeah i think the right worship has been a very clear concern for for god and and his people since he began to reveal himself you know so if someone could if someone could show me from scripture and tradition that that's not the case i'd maybe be open yeah. to keep my mind on that but hmm. Yeah, I hear you on that. Well, and so I'm curious because
0: I've actually had this this discussion with, you know, a few people across the Christian spectrum, not a ton, okay. and it it goes back to this of, you know, do your confessions, do your does your theology, et cetera, matter? Because uh, you know, I I always took pretty literally and pretty seriously that when Jesus said, you know, if you deny me before men, you know, before people, that uh, that I will deny you before my Father. But that to me was, you know. Yeah. You know, like there's a phrase sometimes in, in the Protestant world that I usually only use against people who normally say this, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, the Bible says what it says and, you know, I believe, and you know, so therefore I do it or whatever. So, right. you know, like I was having a conversation <laughs> with someone I was like, the Bible says what it says that if yeah. you did not be before, man, or whatever. And I, whenever I
2: pejoratively talk about people, I yeah, turn right. into a Southern Baptist preacher. Yeah. I don't know why. I love, I love Southern Baptist preachers. though. So a thing. <laughs> Or I usually do like a, a stoner dude. Like if I got yeah. an atheistic argument, like, dude, all just like came together, man, just like randomly exploded. Like,
0: that's <laughs> oh yeah, I get you. Um, oh, but so this, so it was on martyrdom, and you know, which we oh, right. are like ninety nine point nine percent of Christians who were born in the United States will probably never have to grapple with this. But even just you know, there are Christians in. Let's say you know East Asia or in these countries that are closed off to the to church and to the gospel, that you know they very well may need to you know come to a point where they have to either deny Jesus or they have to deny the state or you know their family or whatever it might be. And you know I was having a conversation with someone who said you know I think God would and this is a person who loves Jesus is very committed to their faith and has good reasons you know to believe this and I you know I I, I disagree them so that's why I'm curious to hear your perspective and opinion. They said, if you know, if you are sort of put to the sword, or you know, there's a gun to your head, and they're like, if you do not deny faith in Jesus right now, whatever that might look like, then we will kill you, and so on. That it would be okay uh, because you know, if they're thinking about their family, that I got to provide for my wife and my kids, and so on. Uh, that you know, I that in my with my mouth, I'm going to deny Jesus, but in my heart, I'm not. Uh, and I was like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. But it's interesting how many Christians I've met. It's still pretty few and far between who are like, you know, I think the Lord would understand. But I think, yeah, it kind of goes back to that. Does our theology matter? Do our confessions matter?
2: Right. Yeah. So I would prospectively disagree with that person and say and bring up multiple scriptures where Jesus said, you know, if you want to find your life, you got to lose your life. If you yeah. want to follow me you need to pick up and carry your cross, you need to hate your brother, mother, sister. And, and, you know, which essentially in that context, we have, you know, we would say our interpretation from the church is you need to love God more than these other things. You know, it's not hate your mother and tell her she's a horrible person, you know, like mm. um, so that that would be multiple instances where um, we see Jesus being very clear. You need to love me and be willing to give up everything for me. And we see that in the early church again and throughout the church. And then um, I forget what saint said it, but you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Yeah. And we need men and women to stand up for the faith in radical ways like this. And this seems to be a very clear, um, a very clear mark of of holiness, actually. So mm-hmm. Jesus said, there's no greater love than this to lay down your life with one's friends. I don't, I don't think he meant that allegorically. There's mm-hmm. nowhere where we see that allegorically. So especially when we're making declarations, I guess we, um Yeah, we once again take it as a whole of scripture in in a context of divine revelation. And yeah, we would say that when Jesus says, if you deny me, you know, um, or whatever that scripture is of denying Jesus, like that matters. And it also matters when, you know, he claims that, um, you know, he is the bread of life and that he is, uh, you know, the son of God and that he is actually divine and we mm-hmm. can't just cherry pick which things we want to say are like actually his nature and things that aren't you know so mm-hmm. yeah i would i would disagree and say like well then i i would question their trust in divine providence
1: mm.
2: and god's going to make all things work together for good and i you know if got if i had a family obviously i'm choosing to be celibate um which yeah is a whole fun topic to go into but um <laughs> as uh yeah a celibate male i'm 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 giving my life to the church. I'm giving my life to God's people. And to live, uh, we see in the third century already um, you know, chastity being a a lived reality in the church that was necessary for the liturgy to be celebrated. The the man mm. celebrating Eucharist had to have um no sexual relations. And um that's in a couple of early church writings, which is pretty mm. cool. Oh, that's so, interesting. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, so I can um, yeah, we just kind of learned that over our month uh, retreat. Yeah, the argument that chastity is this new invention and that we just need to have priests be married to fix all the sexual morality is a very false argument and not based on scripture or tradition or truth because clearly there's plenty of married men that are sexually immoral and cheat and rape Mm and molest children. So um, anyway, I would say, yeah, in regards to, yeah, we can't cherry pick different scriptures and that's what I find to be difficult to resolve there like, yeah, if you really believe that Jesus is God and that, um, yeah, he's going to be with you to the end of the age. He's going to be with your family. He's going to provide. God's going to be able to um, do miracles in that context with your family. Obviously that's brutal. Like that would be extremely difficult. I have no idea if I would have the guts or the grace to say yes in that moment for guns at my head, you know, knowing that I'm leaving people that I love, but yeah, following Jesus was never supposed to be an easy, comfortable thing, you know, and the Catholic mm-hmm. Church. we celebrate uh, martyrs regularly in our liturgies. So that's kind of cool thing too. With liturgy, we implement a lot of um, church history and hmm. uh, remember a lot of people that have gone before us that have lived an exemplar, exemplary life of, of following you know Christ. And so yeah, we'll have a day where it's like, hey, they were celebrating the, the martyrs of Ethiopia. Mm. oh and these and you get to hear the stories of yeah some of these saints that were like being burned alive and um i'm thinking of one of them i can't think of his name he's being burned alive on like a stove you know and he's like you know to his uh to his um you know persecutors he was like flip me over i'm a little burned on this side (laughs) wow Like joking you know we also have a group of saints called cephalophores this is hilarious Mm. so it's like seven or eight saints that were beheaded and continue to preach the gospel while beheaded. Hmm. So, um, yeah, you can look it up, cephalophores, it's hilarious. They literally got beheaded, pick up their head, and they keep preaching. Huh. And, um, it's pretty hilarious. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of different examples in the Catholic world of um, of the fruit of martyrdom. And, yeah, once again, I think it's taking the scriptures as a whole in context, and Jesus was pretty clear, like, yeah, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. I don't think that was just a good thought. I think he meant it, you know? Oh yeah,
0: absolutely. No, I, I 100% hear you on that. And yeah, it's a good perspective. Um, yeah, I guess this can kind of start maybe a little lightning round of, you know. Yeah, so I, probably got ten,
2: I probably got like 10 minutes. Okay. You know, I can't believe it's almost three. That's amazing.
0: <laughs> no, no problem. Um, I guess, you know, so I'm uh, I'm curious You know, when it comes to, we talked a lot about the Eucharist and stuff like that, and that's such a big deal uh, for most Catholics. Um, And so I guess what's just so interesting to me is that in the Protestant world, from what I know, it was like the Lutherans, I think were the first one, or the Anglicans to reject that that doctrine of transubstantiation. I don't remember the exact name, but it's that the real presence is there with the bread and wine which just yeah, seems right. kind of odd to me i'm like why don't you just go full like eh, it's just a symbol blah 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 right. blah um but that's sort of me i remember it, like from an early since pretty much like since i became a christian and like read john six i would kind of question my bible teachers like wait i don't get it like it's one of those catholic doctrines that i really push sometimes i go well wait a minute if the bible says what it says and jesus says like you must eat my flesh and drink my blood i don't know we take everything else literally and seriously like why don't we take this one Um, and so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like if you have any knowledge of that, maybe I'm asking the wrong person. Yeah, yeah, We've always taken it that way. I don't know why, you know, you wouldn't. Oh yeah.
2: So I think actually C.S. Lewis still believed in the real presence Hmm. of the, of the Eucharist, um, even as an Anglican. Um, which I think he was, right?
0: I would assume. Yeah. If he's he's in England,
2: probably. Yeah. He's Anglican and believed in real presence. Um, Yeah, so we, yeah, Peter Kreeft has a great, uh, I mean, there's a lot of great books, books on on the Eucharist and the Real Presence, and a lot of incredible data that I just think is pretty overwhelming, you know, and I think it's a great place to start, um, at least in the Catholic teaching, you know, it's like, you you can talk about Mary and saints and all that stuff, but really when it comes down to it, I'm Catholic because of the Eucharist, and I go to Mass, Mm. not for a good sermon or good music, I actually go to eat Jesus, you know, Mm. because... Um, yeah, in John 6, when you really look at John 6, um, so there's different, you know, allegorical instances where Jesus says, I am the gate. Mm-hmm. I am the vine. There's nowhere where we are supposed to take literally that Jesus is a, a vine or that Jesus is oh. a metal gate. These are allegorical, you know, um, demonstrations that he, he gives and plenty others where, you know, the people are like, "Oh yeah, okay, yeah, you're the vine we're the branches, you know, we got to abide in you. You know, you can do a nothing apart from me. I get that. Um, you know, I am the gate. Uh, there's a couple more I can't think of um, where he says things that, yeah, no one, no one was like, yeah, Jesus, you're a vine, you know, but obviously <laughs> we get to John six. And if you actually look at the dialogue, it just gets more and more extreme mm-hmm. First, he says, you know, you need to eat and drink my flesh and blood. And then, uh, you know, you see people kind of questioning and and, and murmuring and, then he takes it to another level like unless you drink the blood of christ and eat his flesh mm-hmm. you have no life in you and actually that that word um you know eat actually in the greek means to gnaw hmm. so actually like this gnawing tearing of the flesh like at least unless you eat the flesh you know of the son of god then um, you have no life in you and it brings up a lot of um you know cannibalism questions a lot of things like, oh yeah how, I how did Jesus claim these things that are so, I mean, they didn't eat blood, obviously drink blood. Um, Jesus is saying radical things. And so here's the difference. When he said he was a gate and he was a vine, he never clarified to people that he wasn't those things. So Hmm. people knew and they took it by his word that, yeah, this is allegorical. And then all of a sudden he, while people question what he's saying in John 6, he goes to another level Hmm. and again says in a whole discourse, you need to eat and drink my flesh and blood to have life. In you and then what happens after that people leave yeah so, so this is a pretty this is a pretty major point for us is that there was no point when they left where jesus qualified his statement yeah so i don't know how people honestly i don't know how you get around that no one left when he said that he was a gate or a vine but they but then jesus said you need to eat and drink my flesh and blood people left and then he asked peter to even his some of his disciples it says in the scriptures left people have mm-hmm. followed him got to a point where they saw all the miracles all the crazy stuff he did, and then they got to this point, and they're like, yeah, we can't do this anymore. Yep. That's pretty crazy. People okay. that were giving their life for him, you know, well, you know, really putting theirself out there to, to follow this guy, and then, you know, he turns to Jesus, and that, that's still one of my favorite, you know, declarations of, of Peter to Jesus is like, Lord, where, where else are we to go? You have the words of eternal life. Um, so, there's nowhere that we see that it's allegorical. There's nowhere in the early church that we saw it practiced spiritually, symbolically. Um, we have very early texts clearly stating um, already the reality of the real presence of the Eucharist. And obviously, Aquinas goes into that transubstantiation theology of, yes, the accidents stay the same, but the substance itself mm-hmm. is changed into the body and blood of Christ. People are like, well, how can he do that? Okay, he's God. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, how did he create, you know, the world ex nihilo out of nothing? Uh, mm-hmm. we don't know if he can do that. I think he can put his flush into a piece of bread. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of the Eucharistic miracles, honestly, are very, um, rigorously tested. So there, there's quite a few that you can look up that, um, one of them in Argentina is really incredible, um, where the host over the centuries has actually turned into flesh, and hmm. scientists have tested the, these, these pieces of flesh. So one in Argentina, this is in the sixties. This isn't that long ago. Um and some have happened in France, they're all they're all scattered throughout that are actually verified by the Catholic Church. So here's the thing: Hmm. there's plenty of crazy stuff people will claim. The Catholic Church is the most skeptical um entity when it comes to miracles, which Hmm. is amazing. Very rigorous um um study that the Catholic Church goes to before declaring anything. That's why the church is so slow to declare saints saints, to declare anything a miracle, because they need incredible evidence from the sciences from psychology. Um, I love a lot of um, deliverance ministry and exorcism ministry. Mm. And that is also a very, there's very few exorcisms being performed. You have to go through an insane amount of uh, mental assessment before we get mm. to the reality that this is demonic, you know. So in general, these Eucharistic miracle, miracles and the one in Argentina in the 60s uh, was discovered by this guy, Dr. Zugibi, So this priest at the Eucharist, they, was, they were giving out the Eucharist communion during mass. It fell on the ground. So as Catholics, we believe that this is so sacred that if it falls on the ground, um, we need to either consume it or dispose of it in a sacred way. So the way that they mm-hmm. do it, they put it in you know a little bowl of water and let it dissolve. And then they'll either consume it or like let it go, I think. I don't know. Okay. It probably changes. But long story short, the next day they come back and that piece of Eucharist that fell on the ground is a bloody scab. Hmm. So obviously they're like, what the heck? They ended up taking it to a secular atheist um, scientist named Dr. Zugibi. And this is all documented. This is all written down. You can literally go to the place. You can meet the doctor. The dude's still alive. He's a Catholic now. <laughs> hmm. But after he studied this little scab, um, this is two weeks later, he discovered that one, it was still alive. So red blood cells usually die after 15 minutes. He was looking hmm. at this thing under a microscope, so alive. He saw that this person did a stress test. And saw that this person must have been under immense stress, Hmm. uh, the crucifixion. Uh, He looked more into, um, it was a universal blood type, Hmm. um, which actually they can relate to the same one that happened in the 12th century in France. Um, And then they found at the end that it happened to be the left ventricle of the heart. Um, So it was enough evidence for this guy, this atheist scientist to become Catholic. Because there's no way to explain it. So we have Eucharistic miracles. Um, which are pretty amazing. And then, yeah, the teachings of Jesus we we do take literally literally. and and I don't know how, um, I mean, I do know how, because i I've heard the arguments from from Luther and Calvin and um, other Protestants that get around, yeah, the uh, maybe association of a presence with it. It's not actually the body and blood of Christ. but yeah, Catholics, we have um, taken that literally and can demonstrate that that was the earliest, earliest belief lived out in the church. Mm. And, um, yeah, for us, it's the source and summit of our faith. So everything flows from that. All of our, all of our, all of our grace, we believe that, you know, grace, um, is something that is received in the sacramental life of the church. So it's a sure place of receiving the grace of God, obviously you can receive grace in the scriptures, you receive grace in baptism and worship, right? But these are sure means of grace for us is the sacramental life. So that's kind of a quick synopsis. Obviously there's 2000 years of, you know, uh, more, more teaching to get into that. But um, that was a pretty huge question of mine because I'm naturally again, skeptical. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's hard for me to believe things of this nature. So even as a Catholic that practices this, this doesn't become easy. Um, you know, y- you really do have to dive into this topic. And for me, the more I dove into it, um, the more evidence I had to take that leap of faith again, that this is really, uh, what Jesus intended the church to look like and how he wanted to commune with me. So the mm-hmm. idea that Jesus just wanted to commune with me in word, um, to me is just missing a different aspect. Like he was so intimate that he wanted me to eat his flesh Mm. and actually gave me a church that will faithfully and uh, perpetually allow me to experience that grace every day. If I want to, that's why in the, our father, Jesus prayed, give us our daily bread. Yeah. Actually in the Greek um, that word daily. uh, I forget what it is, but it's translated to actually supernatural bread. Hmm. So they correlate that to the manna that came down from heaven. There's all these amazing, uh, you know, the Eucharist has so many amazing um, biblical, uh, you know, correlations with, um, you know, the the, the manna. Again, I was talking about the bread of the presence, um, the new exodus, the lamb that was slain, all Mm -hmm. of these, uh, you know, when when the priest holds up after the host is consecrated, you know, he says, behold, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Happy are those who are called to his supper the words of John the Baptist, you know, um, yeah. behold the lamb of God. And so they're bold statements. And I do think that one should be, um, yeah, I think we, I think we should take them seriously because we are, we're either really deluded.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, that's the thing that there, there's no um wiggle room here. Yeah. It's either heresy and idolatry or it's Jesus Christ. So it's not a small topic. And obviously, um, yeah, the more that I searched and looked into it, the more that I found um, really good, reliable sources for it.
0: Yeah, man, I hear you on that. Uh, I know you got to go soon, but uh, I had yeah. one, maybe two. I know it's, you know, hard to give justice just these, but this one I'm always so curious about because I have, I've asked like senior pastors about this when they say like, because you know similar to the tradition, they'll say, well, we accept the I see in creed, you know, whatever. Yeah, right. But one thing I'll, I'll do just to be a jerk, I guess, is I'll ask, uh, well, which one, you know, do you, which creed, like which Nicene Creed?
2: Yeah, right. What you talking about? I'm like, well, does yours include the filioque clause?
0: Are you familiar with that?
2: So, yeah, when you text me that, I was like, I've never seen that be a problem.
0: Um, like, like, have you never heard of it? Or like, it's just like, oh, we have the filioque, because like the Catholic Church is the one with the filioque clause version, right?
2: Right. Yeah. So we, so I've never known one without that.
0: Yeah. So it's just, supposedly it, you know, this is the 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 story from the Orthodox right. Church from the Great Schism, is that yeah, like the words, you know, it says like the Holy Spirit, the Lord the Giver of Life, who proceeds from the Father. Mm-hmm. The words and the Son, yeah, are not in the Greek version supposedly. Mm-hmm. Um, so and it was funny because it was the same thing. Like at Fuller, we were talking about it, and it was the same thing. We're like, what does it matter? And there was someone who was like a real charismatic. I think he went to a Pentecostal church. Yeah, he was yeah. like, actually, this is a big deal. So it had something to do with like the authority of who the Holy Spirit, or yeah, like that the Holy Spirit gets the authority from the Father, and and not the Son. That that's like a big thing. Um, so it was very interesting that like most of us were like, whatever, man, does it really change? You know what we do. Um, so I was curious if you knew much about that. Um, and I, I was know, curious, to...
2: studied that at Franciscan, so I remember. Oh, yeah, and we studied through every section of the of the creed. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, we would go through I believe. What did what did the church how do we define belief? You know, yeah. blah blah blah. We went through every single line. So I remember going through that specific line. Um, yeah, I don't yeah, we probably went over it. I don't remember to be honest, but I remember going through like one class was literally just devoted to going through the whole creed and yeah. where did these sections come in? I think that was part of answering Arianism, from my knowledge. I mean, it was answering oh. hmm. um Either that or, or Gnosticism, uh, meaning the body's bad, the spirit is good, um, this real, uh, what is it, the, the hypostatic um, union. The hypostatic union. Mm-hmm. So that's when those words started to come into the definition because the Gnostics believe that Jesus had this separated, uh, you know, his spirit was good, the, you know, the body was bad, there was a separated divinity, which kind of is like happening in Bethel. I don't know if you follow a lot of Bethel. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But they kind of, like, from my knowledge, like, he, sh- like, Bill Johnson is kind of sharing a modern version of Gnosticism. Essentially, I've heard him say and seen in their writings, like, he believes Jesus was just man operating in right relation to God. And I'm Ooh. like, that's just a modern, that's just a modern Gnosticism, you know what I mean? Yeah, so we started, I think, I think we started to decline, you know, or declare that hypostatic union, um, to to answer to those heresies but yeah i don't i don't remember anything more than that no i hear you um and then the
0: final one so i know it's you know like impossible to do justice to this one to be like a whole podcast right. in itself but what's really big especially in the protestant evangelical world uh like you know especially churches i've been part of camps i've been part of is um and, and i've heard a lot of criticism uh from protestant christians trying to move away from this is um penal substitutionary atonement i don't even know if that's you know means much but it's sort of this yeah uh it's like just a different um atonement model than what i've heard some catholics really talk about um that it's sort of like this idea of like you know the wages of sin being death and that you know justice had to be done that god had to punish someone it was supposed to be us and yet christ willingly took that and I guess it's been getting a lot of criticism in um more liberal or like scholastic Protestant circles. But I was wondering, like, is that, you know, talked about much, like that aspect of um that, you know, that that there had to be this penal, like because of our sins, there had to be this <laughs> substitution, the scapegoat for us. Is that talked about much in the Catholic world?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, that's really church fathers. I'm thinking of again Irenaeus um origin, I think there's, yeah it's definitely uh dispersed throughout um the history of the church in, in different um ages maybe more than others i'm I'm thinking of uh specifically you know maybe Aquinas bringing up in his Summa the um yeah the necessity for uh yeah punishment and how that's kind of like a central message to the gospel is right? mm-hmm. is like He took on punishment that was due to us. Um, Is that lived out in in, in our, in our liturgy? Um, I mean, it it kind of, I I would contend yes, almost every day. I mean, because Mm -hmm. what we're essentially sharing in in the confitier, when we're, uh, we start every liturgy with, you know, acknowledging our sins and the ways that Mm -hmm. we've fallen short and acknowledging that Jesus, um, you know, is the lamb that was slain, that kind of went into that gap. And, and obviously, yeah, we, we teach that Jesus lived a sinful life and he was the only one that could fulfill that debt that was, um, you know, paid. I know in the Protestant world, obviously very rigorously, the blood of the blood of the lamb is, uh, you know, referenced and, um, for good, you know, for good reason. I think that's actually a great gift from Protestant preaching a real emphasis on, you know, uh, you know, Jesus taking on our sins in Every Catholic church in the world there is a cross with Jesus crucified on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we take very seriously um the physical bodily that's why we just don't have crosses. Yeah. But mm-hmm. more that corporal we have we have Jesus on the cross, you know, sharing um, yeah, he took on the curse so that we could receive a blessing. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's definitely throughout. Um, and I'd say that's actually practiced every day in our liturgy, um, acknowledging our own sinfulness and that Jesus did um take on that punishment for us. And that's why we ask. For daily conversion. Um, The Catholic Church is very, very clear on daily conversion. It's not a one-time thing. We obviously don't believe that just by, you know, faith one time confessing that Jesus is Lord, that you're saved. Um, We believe that salvation is is a gift of God um, through our baptism, but also is a lived reality that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And yeah, like you can do things that separate you. We would call them mortal sin mm-hmm. separate for you from the love of God. And if you don't experience the sacrament of confession and reconciliation, getting back into right relationship with God mm-hmm. and yeah, you can go to hell, you know? So we definitely don't believe that you can just, yeah, like St. Paul, you know, you can just say that, you know, you're saved and then live however you want. So in that regard, I, I, to connect it to punishment, hmm. um, we do really believe that faith is a lived reality um, that we work from 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 the state of being loved. Oh yeah, knowing mm-hmm. that He first loved us. So it, it's not a fear-based thing. It's not a work-based thing. It's just when we when we come through faith from hearing the gospel preached, living out that reality through the sacramental life of the church. But also, um, obviously, the Catholic Church is the biggest entity of the world um, that. Um, helps feed and clothe more people than any other institution ever. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have done more in in that social justice realm than any other entity. Um, And to me, that comes from a proper understanding of, of, yeah, the punishment that Jesus took for us. So is it something that is explicitly shared all the time? I don't think so. But I've never heard of it, kind of how, how you said it, or like that there's even debate about it. Um, we don't really debate over over it. You know, like we believe that Jesus took on a punishment mm-hmm. and, and, and took on sin that week. You know, the chasm was too great. I think Augustine talks yeah. about this chasm.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: um, yeah, there's no one that was going to bridge that gap. So actually, uh, Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict, yep. probably the greatest theologians of our time, in his book, Intro to Christianity, he goes into that extensively and goes through multiple different theologians that have as well um, a coin actually being a big one. So, yeah,
0: no, I totally get you. Um, I think the reason it gets to lot is I think, um, you know, the, so some of the earliest church explanations of the gospel are generally what's now called um, Christus Victor, which is this idea of like, they almost saw Jesus as like, and sometimes like, like in other um, like, you know, if you go to like, maybe somewhere like in Africa or East Asia or something like that, or Papua New Guinea, that Mm -hmm. this will appeal to them much more, that Jesus was almost like this trickster character, that there's these, the forces of darkness and the principalities of the air and so on like that really, you know, they're like, oh, that rings a bell. Like we totally understand that that really fits in more with their worldview. And that he was almost like this trickster where we are captive to death and to the devil and to the spiritual force of the world. And he willingly gave himself over to them and then was like haha gotcha kicked down the door and you know led captives in his train and so on and that was what from what i've heard i actually haven't read that much of the original like of irenaeus right. or origen or whoever that supposedly that was like a big thing with the earliest earliest um uh church fathers right. um and then there's other examples like you know but they don't always uh factor in the crucifixion well so like another one is like um Uh, I can't remember what it was, but it's like this idea that Jesus is the new Adam that, you know, Mm. and and Paul does talk about in Romans, but this idea of he lived this perfect life for us and that, you know, as one man brought sin in the world, one took it away. But it's sort of, so I think, but penals or some people call it satisfaction theory as well. They're very similar, but yeah, substitution and uh, satisfaction theory kind of get into that. Like, but why did Jesus have to die? You know, what's this connection with the lamb and with, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so that's why, so the, I think, oh, the reason though, that it's, it's gotten a lot of flack is, and it actually kind of goes back, we were talking about way earlier of the woman who came to the alpha class is she just <laughs> was like, why did God have to torture his son to death? Why couldn't he just snap his fingers and boom, like everything's chill. We're good. And I think it gets, it's, it's just very difficult. I think for us to understand the holiness of God, that he is holy, that he is just, and that he won't just snap his fingers, that he right. is part of his nature. And I think that's just very difficult these days. Also, I think there was, there's some feminist theology that I understand where they're coming from. And I don't say that pejority, pejoratively at all, that like, right. they'll say, you know, this is like an abusive father. And I go, oh, right. okay. Like, I kind of hear you on that. But right. I think once again, that's sort of this moral distancing that we have from the time right. of when these events occurred. Well,
2: I think forgetting too, God is love. And this is the question of like, a loving father letting his son be tortured to that degree. I mean, that's, that's a challenge to what our, our idea of love is, which I think, you know, plenty of philosophers and theologians have gone into like our, our idea of love doesn't involve suffering, Mm -hmm. not God's does. So I think there is a difference of um, yeah. Us ascribing again, our ways are not his ways. Our thoughts are not, not his thoughts. We're ascribing a human love. To an eternal entity that is infinitely knowing, good, perfect, you know, and expecting to have it figure out. So I find when I try and find answers like through that way, applying human experience completely to God. So therefore, I love my child. I would never want my child to get hurt. Therefore, God must be the same. Um, I think that doesn't work, and I think it gets us into these dialogues like that. Like I, I, you know, those are good points. I can see people bringing that stuff up, but I think that's when we get away from. Um one, the most difficult, I think, human thing to do is to submit um to God, right? I mean, why I, I think c s. Lewis actually talked about this, and maybe this might be something that um yeah, the the woman at the Alpha meeting would experience, but I would say a lot of people I experience the reason they don't believe in, in the God of the Christian, you know, um you know Bible. Is uh, because of the morality from the waist down. Um, C.S. Lewis kind of put that in that fashion: sexual um, morality. Like we will not believe in a, in a God that wants to bring order to our sexuality. And I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about that. He's like, we we just won't agree with someone. Or maybe it was Chesterton talked about like we just don't want someone telling us what to do from the waist down. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think a lot of these different whether yeah they think of an abusive father. about right now 52 percent of american families um are fatherless i think that was the latest p research there 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 is a all this all this you know insane crime and hatred it is largely due to fatherless homes Hmm. i would contend it's a huge uh factor um in almost every aspect of a child's actions is, is a fatherless home you know i don't know what your family experience you know was um my my dad has been around in my life my dad has told me he loves me um you know that's my parents are still together um obviously divorce is an experience for a lot of people and it's a real i've never spoke to someone um that in light of uh, experiencing a divorce um wasn't in some way trauma like traumatically affected by it you know yeah. I mean? so i think in those situations where we're looking at god as this um, yeah, yeah. what good loving God would allow such depth of, of suffering for, you know, a child to, to experience? Um, I think we're being really affected by the fathers of our generations and our fatherly experiences and we're applying them to this eternal being. Um, but I do think it's a good question and it is, it is to a certain degree kind of disturbing, you know, mm. like to see how bloody and horrible the crucifixion was. And at the same time, yeah, justice and, and, um, you know, sacrifice were necessary in the Levitical, um, laws of, uh, or the Mosaic laws, like they, there had to be sacrifice. Yeah. So, but then again, you can say, well, God, why did God set it up that way? Maybe he could have said, Hey, maybe our sac, you know, maybe the, 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 the the penalty could be fulfilled by a hug, you know, Mm -hmm. and it didn't have to like, it could just be a hug, you know, and, there's plenty of other ways I think God could just snap his fingers. And, you know, I love when the atheists kind of share that, like, well, why why doesn't God just put a blimp in the sky or put clouds in the sky and say, I'm God, I'm real, you know? And um, again, we're, uh, to me, just describing a human, human thought to an all powerful, you know, intellect that is just not thinking as we're thinking. So yeah, I don't disregard the good questions, but, I don't know if that really answers the question, but I do see from a psychological standpoint, the fatherless generation, which I think we're really coming into it, is experiencing uh, deep wounds from that place, you know? Um, and I really feel for, for them because we don't know how to relate to God as father.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh yeah. I totally get that, man.
0: Well, man, thanks for sharing. I know uh, we're both, you know, probably over on time, uh, but man, thanks for coming and thanks oh, for joining. Oh I love <laughs> these kind of conversations
2: we could talk forever um yeah man we should do it again i love uh it's a yeah i've actually learned a lot about these different um dialogues that yeah you're you're in and um yeah hopefully there's uh some things in the catholic world that were clarified and I, and i do think that a lot of it just yeah it's just clarification of, of things that we're just not hearing about each other's you know faith lives that it's just super helpful for people to hear and it's like it's okay to disagree um, and it's okay for us to dialogue, I think, as we're um, both contending for truth and orthopraxy and orthodoxy. It's like, dude, this is a push in the right direction, and I'm like fully on board. So um, my seminary life will begin in two weeks, and it's going to probably be very chaotic. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully, we can uh, keep this going in any way I can, um, yeah, pray for you guys. And and um, yeah, I've done actually quite a bit of worship, you know, events with Protestants. Mm-hmm. And Matt Mark kind of says, like, it's hard for us to argue when we're worshiping together and singing together. Yeah. You know, it's like, I love that, like, the more we can be with the poor, uh, Matthew 25, you know, is um, something I think we really need to get back to in in our Christian walk. We can dialogue all we want, you know, but if we don't, if we don't associate ourselves with the poor, those that are hungry and thirsty, and if we don't clothe the naked and be Christ to those people who are marginalized, then what are we really doing? You know what I mean? And that's what Jesus is going to judge us on, he's going to judge us on how we loved. Mm. Um, so I would love to love people more with my Protestant brothers and sisters, you know? So that's kind of like a hope and dream is to um, like, yeah, like go out and, and serve um, because we can agree on that, you know, Protestants, I know love mission trips. You guys love retreats. You guys love, um, you know, serving others. And it's like, Hey, we do too. So mm-hmm. like, let's do that together sometime, you know?
0: Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I'm excited you know, to, to keep up with you and see what God's doing in your ministry. And so, yeah, thanks for having you. me on. Anytime. It probably sounds strange to hear from a Protestant, but one of the things I've increasingly found myself attracted to is the importance of communion in the Catholic Church. I'm not sure if I'm there when it comes to transubstantiation, but it makes a lot of sense to me. And I haven't heard a ton of Protestants explain our rejection of it thoroughly. While I still identify as evangelical, I find an appreciation for how Catholics tend to embrace scholarship and understanding of church history. I think I've grown a better understanding of apostolic succession, yet I find myself valuing Protestant views more still. While we still don't agree on everything, I appreciate hearing Andrew and my other Catholic friends' viewpoint and gaining a deeper understanding of our faith.